0: The opinions expressed on the ACB Media Network are those of the content providers and should not be viewed as an endorsement of any product or service, nor does it reflect the views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. This is Sunday Edition with Anthony Corona, every week here on ACB Media 1.0. That's American Council of the Blind, Media One, and soon after on all your major podcast catchers. Each week, we'll dive into the news, human interest, and discussions about the issues surrounding all of us in and out of the American Council of the Blind community. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Sunday Edition. I am so glad to have you all as listeners, as audience, as friends, and as ECP family members. Today, we're going to be diving into getting to know Deb Cook-Lewis, who as of Wednesday will be our interim president while we search for a new executive director. I sat down with Deb on Friday for an in-depth conversation, weaving in many of the questions that you guys sent into Sunday Edition I'm really proud of this conversation. It was um, very heartfelt. There are some warm, raw, honest moments in the conversation. And like I said, I worked in as many of your questions as possible. Unfortunately, we spoke for so long, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, there really isn't gonna be any room today for any further questions or comments or shout outs Congratulations to Deb. So, what Sunday Edition will do is we will forward to Deb any questions or congratulatory messages you may have if you send them to Sunday Edition AC, all one word, Sunday Edition AC at gmail.com. And next week, I will be here with the developers of the app OCO. It is a uh, accessible pedestrian crossing app. Um, I have been using it for a couple of weeks. It's fabulous. So please come back next week and all your questions will be answered by the founder and developer of the app and company. And um, without further ado, Bryn, let's get to know Deb Cook-Lewis. Oh, and thank you to Sheila, Jane, and Bryn for facilitating all of the -the behind-the-scenes stuff today. Happy Sunday, everyone. All right. So we are here with Deb Cook Lewis, our newest president of the American Council of the Blind interim for the moment. Um, Welcome back to Sunday edition.
1: Yes, it's been a while, hasn't it? Yeah,
0: it has. And and I'm going to direct in the podcast notes, folks, Um, back to some of the other conversations that we've had. But I'm thinking that, it, you know, for prudency. Let's get to know you a little bit. Let's let's do the highlights, you know, where you're from, where you were born, um, and tell us a little bit of your blindness story, if you don't mind.
1: Oh, uh, sure. Well, um, let's see. There was a song about uh, my being born, only they didn't know it was a song, but uh, it would go, uh, I was born, it was a Chelsea morning. So that's true. I was born in Chelsea, Massachusetts, but I actually don't remember any of that. My father was in the Navy and was stationed in Boston. And so I was born at the Navy hospital there. But I really don't remember any of that because my parents moved when I was some weeks old. So, um, you know, I have no idea. But that's what my birth certificate says. And that's what they tell me. So <laughs> I guess that's cool. So I was actually raised in uh, a little place called It's not that little anymore. But when I was growing up, it was pretty pretty rural, but a little place called a Puyallup, Washington. And if you can pronounce it, it means you've probably been there (laughs) because it's spelled P-U-Y-A-L-L-U-P. And so, you know, a lot of people want to pronounce it Puyallup or different things, but, um, I'm it's already pu-
0: picturing the limic- limericks.
1: <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yes. Oh yes. You, you got it. So, um, I went, I uh, went all through school there. I went to public school, um, and I graduated from Rogers high school. Um probably uh, one of the interesting elements of my high school time, uh, and this, so my appointment as interim uh, president for ACB is kind of a deja vu all over again, because uh, when I was in high school, I ran for student body vice president and won pretty handily. It's kind of an interesting story, but I did win. And I started out on my little career as vice president thinking, oh, the only thing I have to worry about is that fine print down at the bottom, which says if something were to happen to the president, you would have to X, 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 you know? So, uh, as it turns out, uh, something did happen to the president. He was expelled. <laughs> At least we haven't done that in ACB, but <laughs> <laughs> none of that. None of that here. We're much more sophisticated. But um, but anyway, our our president was expelled. Here comes another expelled. Here comes another song for us. Smoking in the boys' room. So <laughs> he got in some big trouble. And so uh, it was fairly early in the season. Uh, it was it was during fall football season, as a matter of fact. So I actually spent most of my junior year as president of Rogers High School. And uh, there were some very interesting things about that, because I don't think uh, too many people had anticipated that that was going to happen. And um, there was a lot of sensitivity in Kind of the community and the business community about a blind person being the high school president. And, you know, there were certain functions you were supposed to fulfill, and I was willing to do that, but, um, you know, public sort of functions. But there were people who weren't sure that was okay. So I I learned a little bit about discrimination uh, from that, and I learned about, um, you know, what perceptions are and how perceptions change when circumstances change, and sometimes people's real real views or real colors or whatever come out. So anyway. um.
0: I would think, though, that you, knowing you the way we know you now, you probably had a hand at changing some of their perceptions as well.
1: Well, I hope so. But I, you know, looking back, I don't know, because it was a really tough spot to put a kid in, you know, for any kid. And so um, I'm not sure I, I fully responded in the ways that I would want to see me or someone else respond now, but I can sure tell you, I have lots of advice for someone who gets in that spot and some of that is do what I do, and some of it is definitely don't do what I did. So, so there's, there's kind of a mix on that for sure. But it was a long time ago, but it, it definitely has stuck with me over the years and was a marvelous lesson because, you know, I think I was pretty sheltered in, in our small little isolated town. And, um, and I think I really didn't think those things went on, you know, really, but they do. And they did. So um that, that was a that was a really good learning experience for me, I think. Um well, before
0: you go on to the next stage, yeah. this actually so I'm gonna do this while we talk. I'm gonna intersperse some of the questions that came uh-huh. in because yeah. Peggy actually <clears throat> Peggy sent in a question asking mm-hmm. if you thought when you were a young girl that you would end up in leadership positions.
1: Um no i I don't think I don't think I did um, not really although I I often found myself in them but it wasn't so much because I aspired to be a leader as much as that I am a pretty intense doer and when you do a lot um, appropriately or inappropriately you'll get tapped for leadership. And I say that that way, because I think sometimes when when we're really good at what we do, we get promoted to the place of our incompetence. And then I think <laughs> sometimes when we are really good at what we do, we're exactly the right person to move forward. So it sort of depends on the situation and the person and, you know, so many factors that are in there. But I never actually said... You know, in the third grade or so, what do you when What do you want to be when you grow up? I never said I think I'd like to be a leader of something. <laughs> um, and in fact, somebody said if somebody had said, "Would you like to?" I think I'd have said, "No, I don't think so." Uh, for one thing, I'm I, people don't realize this about me, but I'm actually really quite introverted. And, and that's not something you would sort of assume because I talk readily to people and I do things really, but I really am pretty introverted. Um, so I am not incredibly comfortable in uh, big social situations and I'm not necessarily incredibly comfortable with, you know, just jumping out there and doing it for the sake of doing it, um you know, I, I don't have to jump off the tallest building, you know, I can jump off the lowest to be fine. But the way I because I'm sort of a doer, I might like to jump off of it 10 times, not once. So, <laughs> so therefore, therefore, I, I think that um, my leadership style is very different because of because of the personality that I have. So, um, so I don't uh, always uh, need to you know, need to be out in front. And I and I never aspired. Uh, part of why I ran for the student body president in high school was we, some of us didn't like sort of the way things got done and decided. And our school included junior high kids as well uh, because it was a rural school. And um, so they were not treated very well by the student body. And I thought, you know, it might serve them right to have that minority looking vote, which is actually the majority population here, uh, take a vote. And what if, what if there were a candidate that actually was of interest to them, even if it wasn't one of them, uh, what if they felt supported and what if they, and so, like I said, I, I won the election by a landslide, which uh, nobody expected except my campaign manager who really helped to work that crowd, you know, so um, yeah, strategic. you know, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. yeah. It's very strategic, very, very interesting. And I, and I like strategic activity. I mean, you know, I don't really like things to just happen. So, um, yeah, I, I never, I never would have, if you had said uh, to bringing that question just a little more into the current, uh, in 2016, I was chosen to be one of the, uh, chase, Uh, leadership fellows. It was the first class of the late chase leadership fellows. Um, and if you had said to me, Oh, and by the way, in, uh, what are we seven years out from that in seven years, you will, you know, become, uh, the interim president of ACB and the likely candidate for a full term. Um, I I I think I would have said oh no, no that's that's fine thanks I I must be at the wrong meeting so I really no I I I didn't I didn't apply for that to become the president but at the same time when I applied for that I said I need to come away with this confer- from this conference with something that I'm going to be doing because I need to give something back to the organization who was so generous to bring me here and so I need to figure out what it is I could do to, uh, for them. And so as we were sitting around waiting for things to happen, I learned that uh, they were really in desperate need of people to serve on the Board of Publications. publications. Yeah. And I, um, I understood fundamentally what the pub- Board of Publications charge was. But like most people, I really thought it was 99% about the Braille Forum and that's a big piece of what they're in, engaged in, but not all. And so uh, I uh, said to Denise Cawley, who was the chair of the BOP at that time and who was running for the board, so that was creating one vacancy, and then there was something else that was creating another one. So anyway, they had a couple, and uh, so I said, sitting next to her in the auditorium, you know, in the in the room. I think that would be very interesting. I might enjoy doing that someday. And that's just conversation. It wasn't anything aspirational. It's just conversation. I'd like to do that. Would you? Right now? Um, Well, I don't know. Well, let's go talk to uh, Ron Brooks, who was going to be the incoming chair. We've got to talk to Ron about the fact that you will run. Will run? Yes, run. I believe I will. I think, where's the door? So... um, (laughs) So, you know, I think with me, things are not necessarily spontaneous, but they're not necessarily totally planned. So I came in with a notion that I would like to do something, something presented itself. And I took and I and I went after it. Now, I might not have won. I mean, you know, uh, and that would have been okay. I mean, it wasn't like I had been aspiring to do that. So so I, I think that's the way a lot of things have happened for me, is that the opportunity has come, and I have taken advantage of what's in front of me rather than go out and create it.
0: Well, yeah. you just answered um, Kenneth Simeon's question. <laughs> I'm sure you okay, can imagine okay. what, the, what the wording of that question was. <laughs>
1: uh-huh, um, uh-huh.
0: But I, I think it would definitely um, interest our listeners. What happens in New year? <laughs> Did you run again? Um, <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, so, no, so I didn't run again my senior year, um, because i I decided that the hurdles that it required to kind of keep this um, persona up that was required for this. And I don't really like football that much, so. <laughs> but um, uh, the 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 persona that was expected for a high school president was not really me at all, and I struggled again somewhat as an introvert. I struggled to get through my year, and I decided, with no questions uh, on my part, that no, I was not running for. I was not running for another term. And in fact, as far as I know, I'm not running for anything the rest of my life. <laughs> so uh, you should never say never because it doesn't turn out that way. But, but I did learn so much about myself and I learned definitely about kind of where my limits were and... Um, you know, and that all it all is not as it looks, and um, so well, no, I chose I chose not to run again, and I actually spent a very peaceful uh, senior year. I, I was very involved in the in the music department, so I played piano uh, for the swing choir and for the main choir whenever it wasn't singing a cappella, which wasn't that often. But when it was, I, I played with the I t- traveled and played with the swing. Uh, sw- swing choir can't even say it, um, and and also uh, accompanied people who were in solo competition for voice. Some of the voice um, competitions that we sent people to. So I and then our state our uh, school had um, had um, a relationship with a local commercial radio station, and some of us who were in the journalism department. Um, got to actually go and basically study broadcasting um, under the tutelage of the manager of this station. And we um, spent airtime and did production and all of those kinds of things you might like to do. And I learned from that that I probably did not want to have a career in radio, but I did get some valuable skills that I've carried with me to this day. So um you know, that was, and it was a wonderful, it was a wonderful, good experience. And I also had in high school, a part-time job. Um, I think I was the only blind person I knew who actually had paid employment. Um, that's a little more common now for kids, um, due to a lot of different changes in, um, the way VR works and works with kids earlier and helps some of them, you know, get summer jobs and winter jobs and whatever. But in those days, nobody did that. But um, I had a job um, playing uh, organ for a big church that that paid its music people, and also had plenty of weddings and funerals for extra weekend work. So, um, you know, I, uh, I, I. Uh, the joke was about how many weddings that I had been to, and none of them were my own. But, um, but I, I had. I had plenty of funds. I really did. And so um, so I had so much going that I didn't really need to be president of anything. So I opted out on that, and I don't think it hurt me any. And it was a very honest decision. So that was gone, <laughs> never to return. <clears throat> yeah. And I think that that, excuse me,
0: I, I think that that illustrates that, you know, your analytical thinking has been a part of you for, you know, yeah. your lifespan, um and and that's it without a doubt a strength that you show in in everything, um ACB related. So you left high school and mm-hmm. I assume went to school and and what what was the next? I, I went to of, college.
1: I, yeah, yeah, I went to college. I went to Pacific Lutheran University, which is a small private, very conservative college um, near my home. I wasn't feeling very brave about going far, far away. Although I, you know, I secretly wanted to, but I just, when it all came down, I, you know, again, pretty introverted, not sure socially if I would be okay. I stuck pretty close to home. I think that was a huge mistake, but you know, we do what we do. So um, I was a music major. I majored in um, uh, um, organ performance and I was a voice minor. And, a, and I had a double minor, Voice in Theology. And you might say, well, what do people do with that degree? And I asked that question about halfway through. I mean, I was doing this because I really thought it was what I could do. I just didn't know of anything else that I could do or that I wanted to do. And um, so, and, and, and my parents were putting deep pressure about, you've got to get a college degree okay. <clears throat> so we got my one magical
0: degree and that was going to make sure you'd have the, something to yes. fall back on for the rest yes. of your and life. And you
1: know, my parents, <laughs> well, no one in my, no one in my family had gone to college. My father was very successful. My father had a very successful business uh, without any college degree. And I reminded him of this periodically, but I don't think it helped me too much in the family circle. Um, And so, um, I had two younger sisters and, uh, one of them went to college. One of them went to vocational technical school. They both did fine, but, um, but I did go to college. I I started in a music degree and about halfway through my degree, I went to my faculty advisor who I dearly loved. He was a great guy. Went to my faculty advisor and I said, Mr. Dahl, I'm going to graduate in a couple of years with this lovely lovely, impressive sounding degree. And I will have played a senior recital and I will have played all the Bach greats and I will have done everything you want me to do. And I just wondered, how am I going to survive the rest of my life? Because what am I going to do for a living? Like they need to make money and I want to make lots of it. So um, (laughs) what am I going to be doing? Do you think, what should I be planning for? Well, that's when I learned that uh, most of the people who got this degree ended up taking private piano students and teaching music somewhere, heaven for dang bid. And, um, and, and the whole idea of private piano students, little grubby fingers on my beautiful piano was just not very, oh gosh, anyway, <laughs> not, not pleasant to me at all. <clears throat> so um, I uh, dropped out of school. I mean, I was like, well, college degree is not going to do me any good. I later did go back and finish the degree. But, but at the moment, um, I, I could not see this. I mean, I I needed to make money. I needed to uh, succeed at something. I needed to not teach, you know, grubby-fingered little piano students. I, I didn't want to teach music in any school somewhere. I was afraid that I might be relegated to teaching music at the school for the blind or something, which I absolutely didn't want to do. Uh, Actually, as an aside, the school for the blind in my state has a fabulous music department and it would have been a real honor to teach there, but I didn't see it that way. So, um, so basically I dropped out and I went to work. Um, so now I've got to get a job with no degree. So, um, I, um, I, uh, uh, signed myself up to volunteer for everything that would take me as a volunteer and uh, I got some pretty neat assignments and I asked them to give me real work and if I did the real work real well I wanted a real reference um, yeah I said you don't have to hire me you know I, I I might like to work for you or I might not but but what I really want is a real letter of reference that describes what I did and Whether I did that, you know, competently or whatever, and whether you would recommend me based on all the factors we ever use in recommending people. I had four letters uh, to match my four jobs. I took a day off each week, you know, so I only worked four days a week, but Hey, you know, I'm unemployed. <laughs> I, I, when I go to work, I won't be ever having a vacation again. So mm. I don't work five days a week guys. So, <laughs> um, <Strategic thinking. laughs> I, I hoped so. I hoped so. I look back on that now and I laugh cause you know, I think, I think that was one of my better moves actually. But anyway, so I had my letters and I started applying for jobs and, um, I got a, I got a job, um, it was actually uh, through, through a contract, but I had a separate employer, my contractor, uh, employer was, was a contractor with services for the blind and they were going to be doing what we now call um, the Older Blind Independent Living Program, but in 1974, it was, it was not that. Um, it was not called anything. it was just some extra money they had, so they paid me to work a big territory and teach people things that I knew nothing about homemaking. Are you kidding <laughs> cooking no way um, but but i I did actually. Um, develop a a process and teach people some things and I loved my clients and they loved me and I did this for like three years and then I got a job with the city of Tacoma Um, this was back in the CETA days so uh, the Comprehensive Employment Training Act um, which has had a a number of iterations since but this would be like 1976 and um, so uh, we were putting people with disabilities to work who had basically never worked. So we had people who were 40 and 50 years old, many of whom had moderate developmental delays. Um, Some who did not, but many who did, all of whom had not very many marketable skills. And uh, we were trying to, um, you know, ferret out what skills they did have right now and what ones we could develop and how we could ever get them to work. And we had a certain amount of money that we could pay their wages with, but we needed real employers. So it was a lot like my volunteer deal, because you know, basically what you were out doing saying, I got somebody who will work for you for whom you will not have to pay, but you have to give them something. You have to give them good feedback, very honest, real feedback. And if they do good, you have to give them a reference. And uh, we got a number of people permanent employment out of that. So I, I felt really good about it, but I, there were days, (laughs) you know, because you're dealing with people's soft skills too, not just whether they have a work skill, but whether they know to come on time, whether they know to come dressed appropriately, whether they come planning to behave appropriately, whether circumstances push them over the edge and they don't behave appropriately, you know, all those things that, that, that all of us at some level have to learn. And uh, that is hard to learn when people haven't expected it of you. And it's hard to learn when you have been in environments where it wasn't expected of others either. So the modeling wasn't very good. Yeah. So that was pretty challenging for me. Um, Another thing that was interesting about that job, just for me personally was that some of these people were my peers. They were a little older than I was, but I had ridden um, my first couple years of school. They bused me to a different school so I could learn Braille and stuff, and then they stopped doing that. But on that couple years where they were doing that, some of these kids were part of my transportation buddies. So I knew these folks, and I knew what their lives had been like. And so is an interesting thing to come in as someone's peer and say, okay, you know, I'm farther up the food chain than you are now, and I'm gonna try to help you. But how do you feel about being helped by somebody who was your peer, you know, or who maybe you took care of because you were the bus, you know, uh, bus patrol person or something, you know, so, so a lot of that was really interesting to learn, you know, in terms of personal dynamic. Um, very interesting stuff, so I really appreciated that experience too, because it helped me to think about as roles change um, how how do people see you and how do you see them and you know um yeah you know, I need you I per- wanted to make such a good impression on my new job but I, but i <laughs> couldn't treat my i couldn't treat my peers as as if they were my project you know they still needed to be my peers,
0: yeah did Did you reflect back to that that time period um in your early experiences mm-hmm. with b o p or when you thought about running for first vice president
1: um no, but i but I have thought about it lately a lot, which is probably why I'm talking about it right now is I've thought about it a lot because um it, it, as we change roles, you know my role with staff is changing um my role with Dan is changing um you know, Eric's leaving the party, so my role with him is kind of undetermined. I mean, you know, he just becomes an external player. Um, but yeah, you know, it's like um, do people see you differently in a different role, or do they still see you as pretty much you with some particular responsibilities? Um, you know, and how do you, how does that manifest itself? And does it matter? And where do you need to be sensitive to it? It's like if I say something, how do you know if i'm saying that as the president of an organ of a big national organization or as me or as uh you know and you're never off you know when you have any yeah. kind of leadership role you you're never off the books you just are not i don't know how many times i've had to have that conversation with people no you can't do that i realize you think you're on your own time but you have no time so but but still you do have relationships and you do have all kinds of things that play in. And how do you, um, how does that evolve? And it, it's not that much different than if you have a job and you get a promotion or, you know, probably the closest thing for that with me in, in my employment was that a coworker and I traded jobs and uh, he became my supervisor and I had been his supervisor for 20 years. And, now he's going to be my supervisor. And how do we feel about that together? And we had some great, you know, great interaction around that. But, um, um, you know, we literally traded, traded jobs with some, with some nuances. I mean, there were some things I still had and some things he still had. But really, pretty much we traded jobs so, <laughs> you, know, you know, I mean, so it's not the first time I've, I've had an opportunity to think about that.
0: So those of mm-hmm. us that know a little bit about you know that your musicality is still a part of your life, but mm-hmm. the actual playing and, and being involved in the creation of music, is that still a part of your life? And as you went into the work world, did you ever have the struggle to say, you know, I do have this musicality, but I do have this ambition. And of course, you know, even though I can't make money at it, um, you know, it's still something that I put many years into.
1: Yeah. Um, One of the hardest things I ever did in my whole life was um, when we decided to move where we live now in Clarkston, Washington, which is a little dinky dinky town town. Um, highest zip code in the contiguous 48 states is its only claim to fame. But it's a little dinky town on the uh, Washington, Oregon, Idaho, where they all come together. Um, And we have a much smaller house, which is very practical for retired people and different things. But I don't have room for my grand piano here. <laughs> if if we did, that's all we'd have. <laughs> we eat on it, we sleep on it, <laughs> we feed the dog on it, you know, um, not likely. So um, I chose to let that go. And the day they came to get it, um, to move it to its new home, was the hardest, one of the hardest days of my life. And it's, it's compared only to another equally hard day that I'll describe, but, um, basically they came and they took it out my front door and down our very straight, but steep flight of stairs carrying it on its appropriate equipment. And part of me went out that door with it. Um, and, um, and I knew that it would, that would never come back, that I would never live in a place where I could have it. And, I told myself that I would purchase some kind of equipment to replace it. Like, you know, a, uh, you know, a keyboard, you know, com- with, a, you know, that you could plug into a mixer and you could, you know, have all kinds of cool. That would be fun. It would be fun, but you know, I haven't done it. I just have never been able to bring myself to do it. Um, because that was just a part of me that left. And the, the other time that relates to this exact same experience, um, I had a friend, a lot of people don't ever have the real experience of having a very, very best friend, and I did. And my very, very best friend uh, and I were housemates for many years, and then she developed brain cancer, and I cared for her for the three years of her illness, and she died. I mean, that's kind of what happens with brain cancer usually. So she did, and... Just before her death, well, six months before her death, um, we decided um, that it was to the place where I could no longer care for her, in the way that needed to happen that I physically couldn't. I mean, it was really hard to move her. She was basically dead weight and so it was very, very difficult to keep her moved and keep her, you know, from, from developing bed sores sure. and things, right? It was also very difficult to keep her clean. I mean, I was doing it, but it was really hard. It was very difficult to do everything and and emotionally, I was disintegrating. So... Um, on the advice of, of a lot of people and in agreement with her, we had found a place that turned out to be very satisfactory to locate her to. And we were getting ready to do this. And on the day of her relocation, uh, we, uh, the only way we could move her was by ambulance. So that's what we were doing. And so they sent, um, four guys to do this and that was appropriate. And they, um, were carrying her out. And they were carrying her out the front door the same way my piano would go out the front door a few years later, number of years later. Um, And uh, they were carrying her out the front door and down that long, yucky, kind of scary set of stairs that that are straight but very narrow and very tall. So um, anyway, carrying her out and taking her to the ambulance And I, and I knew that she would never be coming back. I mean, there was no way that she would be coming back. And I also was so struck by the simplicity of it all, because all she was taking with her was a little box of things she would need, you know, uh, you know, she'd had all these different things and they weren't going to be going with her because she couldn't use them there. And uh, so, you know, she had what she needed and she was going out the door and I had the same reaction to it when my piano went out the door, which is a, a very big part of me is going out the door and going down those stairs and not coming back. And so I had the same, like I said, same reaction for both events. And, um, it was very interesting. It really was. Um, so yeah, I, I haven't done anything with music in a while and I'd like to, um, I just haven't come to a place where I don't have an outlet and um, you know, I, I, but I would like to, and, and I'm hoping that maybe at some time if things ever slow down a little <laughs> that I could, but um, I actually need a little help to sort of get a, get a keyboard and get those things configured and, and make that happen. So,
0: Herbie, um, if you're listening. <laughs>
1: yeah. 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 Yeah.
0: So I, I, first off, I, I want to say thank you so much for, for sharing those two pieces of your life with us. Um, mm-hmm. it's, 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 it's hard for us sometimes to open those doors Mm -hmm. to a grand audience and and know that, you know, people are going to have feelings about it. So Mm -hmm. I I congratulate Mm -hmm. you for for giving that to us. And I'm going to jump to two cute little questions to bring the mood back up. And they are guide dog related.
1: Oh, okay. Oh, wait, you know what? Three (laughs) questions. I'm lying
0: because Um, someone from the community wanted to know, will you grace us with a karaoke song soon?
1: No, <laughs> <laughs>
0: Easy Actually,
1: seriously, <laughs> I have been look, I have looked into the idea. Um, but most of the things that I would like to sing, I cannot find a karaoke track for. And <clears throat> the reason for that is pretty simple. Um, most of them were not big hits. Um, they were maybe album tracks and like from the 50s when albums weren't so popular. Most of them only have uh, mono, mono recordings, mono yes. tracks. I did, I did find a karaoke site um, that where they have tracks, you know, and and it was called. I think it was called something like Dinosaur Karaoke, if I remember. It, dinosaur is in the name, so uh, if if anybody wants to Google it, it was really fun because I found all my songs. But the problem. With them, was that because they'd been, they tried to extract it from a mono track, you do that by removing the highs. So they sounded like crap, you know? So I was like, I can't do that. And my husband is an excellent audio editor. And if you could do this without destruction. He would know how, you know, he, he, he just really is very good, but he just said, well, I can't do any of these. And I have heard him in there searching occasionally for one of them to see if he can find one that's, you know, so he's trying to help me, but I haven't found any of them yet. So, um, the only other way I could do that, you know, would be if I had access to a keyboard and I laid down the 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 audio track you know the the accompaniment track myself and then went back and sang over it so uh, you know that's a possible but i just i don't have the technology for it so um and now you
0: have even less time (laughs) and now i even have less time (laughs) yeah so i'll throw the two guides on questions to you at once um okay Mm um shh uh, Sherry wants to know mm-hmm. of of your guide dogs, if one mm-hmm. of them were to magically uh be transformed into a human to be your best friend, uh-huh. who and why. And Paul wanted to know, mm-hmm. would you consider uh nominating Praline for second vice interim second vice? Oh, the president.
1: second <laughs> interim second vice. She doesn't want it. <laughs> she doesn't want it. <laughs> she doesn't want to work that hard. Um so Yeah. You know, I hope she's not in here. She's not the one I'd pick. I love Praline. She's a wonderful dog. But the dog that I would, if I could have a forever dog that just, you know, you know, I I bring you back and and you're going to be the forever dog, would be my fourth dog, Felicity. And Felicity was... absolutely sort of the champion at everything. There wasn't anything she couldn't do, couldn't figure out. She had a lovely presence. Um, She didn't ever embarrass me in public. Um, You know, she wouldn't think of it. Um, But she was a very cunning dog and she actually did dig a hole in the, uh, dig a hole under under the fence in our backyard, dug herself out And went all the way down to the freeway (laughs) and, and, and did a couple of really weird things uh, in all of this trip. So, um, uh, you know, uh, but she would be, she would be the one, if I could sort of bring her back, it was just really hard for me when, when we lost her because I just thought she was the perfect dog but um, we have Praline who is a little less than perfect, but she's also a very delightful dog and she doesn't want to fill any office. <laughs> yeah. So uh, no.
0: I like I said, I'm going to direct folks to our previous conversations, uh-huh. but why don't you take us through what you consider your career highlights? And then we're going to mm-hmm. talk about your Washington and, and ACB mm-hmm. highlights mm-hmm. after that.
1: Yeah, so I had a wonderful career. I I just absolutely, when I look back on this, I don't think all the time I thought it was wonderful, but when I look back on this, I th- I had an amazing opportunities, and I and and I just am so appreciative of all of that. Um, so as I think I kind of mentioned before, I started as a contractor for Services for the Blind and did that for a while, and then I went on to the City CETA and did all those things for a while. Um, finally, I um, uh, Services for the Blind. Um, was told by the state that their contracting processes were not legal and they couldn't do this anymore. And uh, so we were all shut down, um, those of us who were doing the work. And uh, that was really uh, disappointing, except that uh, Services for the Blind did have a real job um, that I could apply for. And I could move out into the remote hinterlands and do Mm -hmm. a lot of what I was doing, but it was going to be in a much more rural environment. So I applied for that job, and at the same time, I applied for a job with the city transit um, doing the dispatch, and um, I always wonder what would have happened to my career had I done that instead of this, because, you know, it's just interesting to think about, but I have no idea, because I didn't. So I took the services for the blind job, and I worked for services for the blind for 16 years. And I uh, worked in three different locations in the state. I ended up in Seattle. Um, When I was in the field, I did the um, skills training. They called it rehabilitation teaching. I don't know. You weren't teaching anybody to be rehabilitated. So I thought that was a really stupid name for the job, but that's what they called it. And then I went and became a vocational counselor and did that for a while. And then I came over and I managed the orientation training center, which was their residential training program. Um, It was right when the agency was transitioning from being uh, a commission for the blind and kind of under the guidance and philosophy of the NFB, and then was not going to be doing that anymore. So I was kind of the transitional person. Um, I went from that, that was a pretty tough job and and it did not suit me too well. And so I did it for a year, but then I decided I had to find something else and I was just going to quit. But actually the director said, oh no, actually I got... I got an idea of something you might really, really like. Uh, he said, we we know there's all this technology out there that's beginning to happen. This would be about 1984. So we know there's all this stuff out there and we've not taken very good advantage of it yet. And we were thinking about creating a position or two of people to sort of bring technology into our world. Would you like to do that? Well, yeah, maybe I would. So, um, so, um they gave me $10,000. They said, go out and buy some technology. I don't know. <laughs> I, I laugh about that because some of the decisions I made were really good. And some of the decisions I made weren't quite as good, but the, how would you know? Cause nobody was using any of it. So anyway, uh, I did that and I did that for about, um, uh, I did that for like 12 years and we built up a, a huge, uh, technology division. They still have seven or eight people, uh, doing just technology, related things throughout the state. Um, We uh, doubled their competitive job placement rate just by applying, correctly applying technology to it. And uh, we did a lot of work with different developers of, of uh, mer- you know, uh, burgeoning technology to, to try to uh, improve a lot of things. So we had a lot of really, really great opportunities. I went from there to, um, and I started, I, I kind of moved upstairs, I wasn't really, teaching technology anymore, but I was, um, working with policy things and working with some of that. And the general thought was that I would probably eventually become the agency director. And, um, I wasn't sure if I wanted to do that because, I uh, one of the famous quotes from our director was it's lonely at the top. So <laughs> I thought, well, I don't know if I want that, but, but I didn't, it didn't happen because in the meantime, I, uh, became acquainted with uh, the people at the university who were managing the assistive technology program for the state, which was new in those days. And they were also managing some other technology interest grants. And, um, and uh, they had just had a very bad federal audit um, and were told they would have to sort of retool their whole management structure. So, um, one day when I was coming in from taking my dog outside I, at the Department of Services for the Blind and I was walking past the reception desk with my dog, I heard somebody on the phone, uh, I heard the receptionist saying to someone on the phone, well, she's just walking by right now. How I, maybe I can grab her and she can just talk to you here. So, uh, I, I stopped because I thought that me was who she meant and it was, and she said, uh, Yeah. Uh, university's on the phone. They they want to talk to you. They said it's urgent. So I I said, well, I wonder if I should, I should probably go back and take it at my desk. She goes, oh, you can take it right here. I'm going to go on break. You can just watch the phones while I'm gone. So, all right. So yeah, <laughs> so so one stone. <laughs> phones all lighting up, you know, and I'm ignoring them. Hi, university. Well, we'd like to offer you a job, they said. I'm like, Oh, I really think I should be back at my desk. <laughs> <laughs> um, whatever you're making, we'll pay you more than that. So we can work out the details later. Do you want the job? Um it, I don't know. What does a job look like? well, you're gonna have to help us figure it out, but we wanna hire you. Um, you know, we have this audit problem, we have these other issues, and and so we decided we're we're we wanna hire you and we would like you to start soon. Um Okay, I I guess I'm in, I said. I I like the university. So... I hung up, and went down the hall, wrote my resignation, <laughs> and of course, then had all the conversations you need to have with people, and and all the things you need to do, and negotiated an appropriate start date because I had a lot of responsibility. You couldn't just yeah. w- walk out the door. <laughs> Although the fantasy was great, I loved it, especially but,
0: with all those phone lines lit up.
1: <laughs> yeah, all those phone lines. No kidding. Oh God. Anyway, so I did. I did. Uh, I did leave. And went to the university and worked the rest of my career at the university. So from 1996, it would be really, until I retired in 2018. And so at the university, we had, we did have the assistive technology program for the state. Uh, ultimately, we had the deafblind equipment distribution program for the state. Um, we had the independent living program. So in all other states, it's part of services for the blind. But in our state, it's part of the uh, Center on Technology and Disability Studies at the university. And the cool piece of that is that it's, you know, co-located with the DeafBlind program and the AT program, and they all feed off of each other. And we have a couple of other programs in there too, but those are the ones that, you know, our listeners would, members would be the most familiar with. So um, the big uh, multiple sclerosis program, and of course multiple sclerosis is a um, is a leading cause of adult blindness. It's not the big one, but it is a leading one. Um, and so, you know, so all of those things connected in together was nifty, nifty cool for our clients, I think. And so, um, so those were all of the programs that we had. And at some level, and at some time I managed all of those, uh, different programs until I left in uh, 2018 when I retired. So, yep, that was my career.
0: So we're going to jump over to ACB in a moment, but we got Uh a couple of questions about Rick and I don't (laughs) think it's fair to put anyone on the spot. If you and Rick were here for one of my couple shows, that would be one Uh thing. Uh So I'm going to throw it to you this way. What would you like ACB to know about Rick that they may not know? And what would you like them to know about the the business you guys have built together?
1: Oh, well, um, gosh, you know, I mean, Rick's a great guy. He's been very, very supportive of what I want to do as that long as he life. doesn't ha- as long as yeah as long as he doesn't have to do it so <laughs> <to your> husband <laughs> yeah so so um uh so you know we um uh he is he has been to conventions. He is a member of ACB. So, you know, he is, and at the local level, um, in our state affiliate, he's part of the communications group. He manages all the email lists and, and, um, does, does some other things. Um, he, he does do some streaming for ACB. He, he does has, pitch in, Yes. Yes. He particularly for conventions, um, he has been, he will stream uh, long hours uh, as a per- as needed because um, he's not coming and we like to have the streaming remotely. So he's perfect, right? Um, so he's at home. And uh, so he does that. He's also uh, helped out with a lot of... Uh, um, uh, state conventions. And I think he's, uh, streamed, uh, Aru for you a few times when you were on, um, yes. Uh, yes. yeah. So, so he, so he's not, um, one of our active streaming people, uh, like on a, on the weekly grid, but when I have overflow, uh, he's happy to, to do it. So he does. Um, he has great editing skills, um, and uh, has edited a lot for conventions and things in the past, but um, not so much these days. But he has certainly done it. Uh, he edits anything I do, any any production that I do. I pretty much just give to him to edit because um, I can do it, but he's faster. <laughs> so, um, so that's great, um, you know. And so he is he is really supportive, but he is not um, he's not likely to be coming to the convention. Um, I was hoping maybe he'd want to come to Chicago because you know Chicago is what it is, but no, he's he said no, so um, uh, you know I think that's fine. And, and and that's kind of where his where his world goes. Um, the thing we have together actually is uh, um, we have something called Lewis Sound Productions, which is where he has done uh, some of the paid production work that he has done. Um, and, um, so we have that as, as our fallback thing, but its primary product is, um, the ride radio, which ride stands for Rick and Deb. Um, so the R I for Rick and the D E for Deb. And so that's how we got that. And, um, and we've had that since 2008 Uh, It was born of sort of a, we we had been on uh, ACB, what was ACB Radio, uh, now ACB Media. We had had a program on, uh, several programs on there. In fact, Rick had at one point been program director uh, for the, uh, what would be Cafe Now, but was ACB uh, Radio Interactive uh, in those days. Um, And so we, um, we had sort of a falling out with the management staff, um, of, of ACB radio. And it was a significant enough disagreement that we decided we didn't know what we would do, but we decided that we weren't going to stay. And so one morning, um, without a whole lot of pre-discussion, we just both said, that's it. And we left immediately. So, um, uh, and i don't believe in uh, in trashing people you know like we didn't leave at the moment of and then start spreading rumors or trashing people or telling our story or being on the tabloids we just left and then what are we going to do so um uh someone said to rick well you know you could start your own and rick was like oh i don't i don't think we could i mean it's, it takes a bunch of stuff we don't probably have but as as we began to research it, um we discovered it would not be that hard to start our own. Now, the biggest barrier for you would be the expense because the licensing expense is huge yeah. and we we pay that. But I think in those days we might have been pretty intimidated about it, but since it snuck up on us, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess we just have to do it. But but in those days we would have had trouble doing that, so we didn't uh, have to worry about it yet. Um, and so we, we started it a few months after we left um, ACB, and it started out to be very small, not not 24-7, that kind of thing. But then gradually, it, it in about six months, we had all the kinks worked out, and it could be 24-7. Some of our programming is carried on uh, Media 4, the CAFE, um, that was originally done for two reasons. One, we were able to work out our disagreements. Um, ACB was able to get rid of the employee who was causing all the grief. And so that, that went well. Um, but we also were able to just kind of work through that. And um, ACB had lost most of the people who were uh, providing uh, content for media for and so they asked if they could just carry some of our content so they'd have some and so we were like well yeah i guess you can well as it turned out it's been actually really great for us because acb has that phone thing tied up to their acb media and and we have never been able to come up with a phone plan and and really theirs is not super viable for much longer we've got to figure it out but in the meantime the ride radio did benefit from a place where people could call in and listen to the shows. So we've we've stayed together, and uh, they don't carry all of our uh, live shows, but they carry quite a few. So they carry mine. I got a, my own self promotion here. On Sunday night, I do a country show yes. from eight to eleven p.m. Eastern time. And uh, most weeks, the last two weeks, I haven't done it because of ACB commitments. (laughs) But most weeks, most weeks I do. So um, that's my claim to fame. And then the other thing which has a much bigger listenership is that um, Rick and I do a show on Saturday morning together that's kind of a magazine show of sorts. And uh, we play some music, but we also chatter quite a bit. And that actually has a very large uh, listenership. And then Rick's, uh, Sunday afternoon show is also carried Sunday, early Sunday evening, I guess, East coast is carried on ACB media. We have a few other things that are not carried on ACB media, but, um, those, those in particular, uh, are, and are on media Four most of the time. We, we had a couple weeks where it wasn't working, but we got it fixed again. So, um, I think it's all good again. Mm-hmm.
0: Awesome. So we're going to get to questions in a little while, but yeah, walk us we've through We've been
1: the... getting to them. You, you're doing a good job of working them in. I like it.
0: Thank you. Walk us through what you consider the highlights of your ACB journey.
1: Well, I've had a couple of different ACB journeys. So in my first uh, iteration of that, I, I guess I should say that um, in terms of consumer organization activity. I've been somewhere engaged in that all my life. My father was a member of, um, the NFB. My dad is cited, but, but, you know, he, as a parent, he, he was an active member in the NFB. And, um, so I remember, um, uh, you know, a lot of things, um, happening, um, as I was a kid. In fact, I do remember when ACB was formed. Um, I didn't know a whole lot about that because, you know, it didn't happen here or anything. It didn't have too much impact on our affiliate. But but um, I, I was aware that a new organization was starting, and uh, that was interesting. So, um, but um, uh, a, as an adult, um, I joined NFB first because it was the predominant organization in our state. And um, I, in the... Uh, early 1980s, there were some altercations between our affiliate and the national organization. And um, I have some different views of those now than I did then. And it's just interesting. But, but we, um, we decided, uh, 98% of us decided to break off from NFB. And we formed a a third organization. So we had NFB and ACB and us. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, uh, and, um, and so, but we were the bigger organization of the three really, and the most active organization. So um, we decided that we would need to affiliate with something nationally because uh, um, I'm a very strong believer in, in the roles and the relationships of both your individual membership uh, your, you know, and, and at your chapter level, if you have chapters um, or can have them, and and at what the role of your state or special interest affiliate affiliation is and what the role of the national, you know, could be. And so I, I think these things all work together. And if you're missing them, um, obviously, circumstantially, you might be missing any of them. But, but if you're really missing them in the chain, I think you're missing out on, on some of the work and some of the process that can happen. So I'm a very big believer in the whole, the whole enchilada, you know, I don't just think that we need the national and we don't need the rest or that we need the affiliates and we don't need the rest or whatever. So basically, um, we decided after good research and thought to uh, affiliate ourselves with the ACB affiliate. So we infused all kinds of energy into that, because that was pretty dead, I have to say. But um, there, you know, we came with our, we had lots of younger people, and we had lots of, you know, dynamic and lots of big ideas and whatever. And so we came that that happened in 1990. So I was active for a while with all that. Um, I was um on on the state level I served on the board and I became treasurer and this is all in the 90s and and I did some other things with that on the national level um Paul Edwards in his administration he and uh, his time as president appointed me to be what would be the IAC now uh, chair and so um I had some engagement on the national level and um and so that was all good, but that all sort of—I I kind of drifted away from all that. I mean, uh, what with different work commitments and 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 different other things that were just kind of taking up my time. I I I, I didn't stay as involved um, after Paul's administration. I didn't have a very much role, um, so so I kind of drifted away from all that, um, and. And then, and uh, I I attended some conventions, national conventions, state conventions, whatever, but I didn't, I wasn't really, I I wouldn't consider myself to be very active. Um, And then from the period of 2005 to 2009, I wasn't even attending anything because that's when I was caring for my friend, or 2006 to 2009, I guess, And then after all that, I still, I just didn't get back right away. And then somewhere along the line, I decided that, well, because I was going to be retiring in a couple years, I'd like to start getting active again. And so uh, in 2011, Rick and I started traveling to all the state conventions to stream stream them. Actually, (coughs) excuse me, we, um, I think we did that from 2008, as I'm recalling. So we we were doing things. So we were streaming the state convention every year and and all that. But I still hadn't gone back to National. And then in 2016, I decided I'd like to go um, back to National. They had talked me into running for treasurer again. Actually, Cindy Hollis talked me into running for treasurer again. (laughs) And um, so I ran for treasurer. I got treasurer. I decided that Um, I'd I'd like to get a little more invested in the national organization. And so then I came, I applied to be a J.P. Morgan Morgan leadership fellow, right? And that was a pretty easy application process for me because I had been involved at at the state level a lot, which is what is the case for many of the J.P. Morgan folks. And I had had some involvement with the National, and a pretty reasonable excuse for why I hadn't for a while, because of my personal commitments. So, it it was okay. Everybody bought into that, and I was selected. And um, uh, Kim was president at that point. And so um, so I've already talked about uh, coming to the BOP, and so I did that. Um, and from sixteen to nineteen. I served on the BOP as a member, and then in 2019, when uh, Ron uh, elected to not be appointed, he could have been appointed one more time, elected to not be, because of his work, changing work situation, Uh, Dan Spoon, who was now elected president, appointed me to be the chair of the BOP, and I did that for two years. And then some people asked me if I would consider running for first vice president. And I said, no, because I'm planning to run for treasurer in two years, because I figured I've done treasurer a lot. I can do that. And so I was actually planning to run for David Trott's position, because this year, David can no longer so, run. Yeah. Right. So that was my plan. And I told people that was my plan. And they just kind of kept saying, well, it, We'd like you to think about this. We'd like you to do this. So, uh, finally I decided, well, you know, okay. I mean, it's not done around here. We don't usually run against incumbents. This organization is so polite. Um, you <laughs> just, yes. uh, you know, and, and we don't do that, but you know, um, uh, it, you know, and, and I love Mark. I don't have any problem with Mark, but you know, I, I think, I think we might, we might be able to have a change and, I don't know whether we will have a change or not, but I'm willing to uh, consider that if we can. So, uh, you know, it was very tentative, um, but I uh, decided I decided to go for it. And uh, so I contacted Dan Spoon. I contacted a number of people before I ran for first vice because I really wanted the opinion of the people that I would have to work with. And so... I asked Dan and others, but Dan in particular, I asked, you know, what, what do you think about this idea? And he said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm all for it, except, but there is one condition. And I said, oh, okay. And he goes, if you do this, you have to be willing to run for president. Well, you know, that's sort of a no-brainer, but I think to have somebody actually say that really, you know, gave me a huge pause. <laughs> yeah, and it should. <laughs> and it should. You know, so um, because he said, I'm not going to run for a third term. And so I understood coming in that the inevitable was probably (laughs) going to (laughs) happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Only life throws curveballs and and a great curveball for Eric and his family. And Dan with his years with Siemens and Mm -hmm. structuring, Mm -hmm. you know, a a good thing, because there's many good things we could say about President Spoon. But a good thing Mm -hmm. that that he was insistent upon was that procedure, you know, needed to match, you know, passion and and needed to match Mm -hmm. all the things we were putting up. Well, if we don't have the procedure to to um, it's the scaffolding to hold it up, then none of it's going to be successful. But I think Dan's going to
1: be great. Yeah. I was just going to say, I think Dan is going to be great because I think one of the things that's, you know, unique for him is not only has he been a member, which we've had many presidents, uh, CEOs be members, that's not a problem. But I think what's going to be amazing is that because he's actually been the president, he really does relate to the board. He relates to the board's sort of situation. He he has... uh, a strong desire for relationship with the board because he had a strong desire for that as a president. And so I think, uh, you know, there's nothing negative about Eric in all this, but Dan's particular experience is going to be really timely and is not going to feel quite as transitional to us as it would be if we had to just sort of bring somebody in from the sidelines or from wherever. Um, So it, it makes that process. um, um, And especially right now we're getting ready for a convention. We don't Mm -hmm. have a lot of time to norm and storm. We have to start doing what we do, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And from, from
0: your perspective, because I think it would be very valuable for, for the listeners who are not as involved in national, you know, in the national Mm -hmm. stage of things, Dan Mm -hmm. has been very involved with the planning of convention, with the planning of the ADP gala of
1: overseeing
0: the procedures and structures in place. So is there anything Mm -hmm. you want to give our members about that?
1: Mm. Yeah. um, Dan is, is, uh, is very hands-on and very detailed and he's very much a, a process and strategic um, planning person and, um, and it's because of that skill uh, that it's, you know, is is a large contributor. I would never say it's the only contributor because lots of people work to make these things happen, and I don't want to shortchange any of it, but his his um, ability to sort of uh, plan down to the nth detail, to the drive you nuts nth detail sometimes, (laughs) I will say. (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But his ability to do that has been invaluable for the organization and has helped us put some things together that um, make very complicated events like, um, the leadership conference we just had or the convention we are about to have. And the last couple we have had, uh, make those doable for us at the level we are. Whereas otherwise it's kind of like, you know, you're all kind of running around going, Oh, Oh, Oh. So, um, You do a little of that anyway, but it's not... He even kind of has that scheduled on the schedule, so um, we can do it. But I... So I think um, he's going to... You know, a lot of people have asked, and we don't have all this worked through at all, but... A lot of people have asked, you know, about sort of roles and dynamic and what do I think will be different, you know, and all of that. And I don't think we totally know. But one of the things that we do know is that Dan is going to continue to operate in his role as sort of the time management, logistics management person. Um, it's not going to pass from him to me just because I became the president. I really think it's actually a function that should be a staff function anyway. And so if you can't get it done any other way, you know, make them staff. So so no, so Dan will will do that and then and then we'll I think where we'll see that really change will be when we actually fill the position, the permanent position, and so then we'll see some change in that. But I think right now Dan will at least to the public and to the surface of this, uh, he'll probably be playing a lot of the role that he has been playing because it's not necessarily a presidential role. It's it's a logistics role that someone needs to play and it can be played from any number of vantage Directions, so, yeah. And yeah. if it ain't broke, so, don't fix it. Yeah, and then the other reality of this is that I'm going to have to still... Um, maintain some of the role that I've had as kind of chief logistics officer or whatever um, related to the convention. Because although we are putting, we'd already started in the process of putting some things in place to do some things differently that I've been doing for the last, you know, three or four years. But they're not fully implemented. They they wouldn't have been. And uh, we were looking for this summer to be Kind of the transitional summer, so it's still going to need to be you know that doesn't change anything, so it means and and I and I think I like that because I actually like doing the work i I like my job, and so I, I know I need to modify it and change it and accommodate the new circumstance and be available for some things that I wasn't doing before, but at the same time, things that I was doing before are still valuable and still needed. And we have to um, make an environment, you know, where people can do those things. So, so I, I, you will, there will be differences, obviously. I mean, I have to put a presidential hat on occasionally, but I think that really, at least this summer, we're, we're going to have to just from personnel, uh, skills and logistics, we're going to do a lot of our jobs that we did without Eric. So, (laughs) you know, um, that I think we're going to have to, because the convention is too close to retool that. So I I don't, I don't see any way around some of that. So, you know, if you get a zoom invitation from me, it doesn't mean the president invited you to something. (laughs) It just means means I'm helping out over there because we've got to get it done. (laughs) Well,
0: I have to admit, you know, I've done pre-recorded interviews a few times. Um, this definitely garnered Ooh. the most uh, questions coming in. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you, you, I, I think you should feel right. pretty good about that. Um, and there were Either that or questions.
1: really worried. I'm not sure.
0: <laughs> <laughs> there were quite a few questions about, you know, your role on mm-hmm. ACP with ACP media and, and some of the things mm-hmm. that you're involved in. Mm-hmm. And and I think you just answered us to to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Are there things mm-hmm. that you have to let go of that you're going to be sad about? Um, and once the convention is over, what do you mm-hmm. think it will look like? Will that be a period where we start transitioning quick uh, with more speed or with more visibility?
1: Well, you know, we have a few transitions to make. So, first of all, I have to actually get elected so you know i'm I'm not naive enough to assume that that's a done deal right so so this three months the 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 interim appointment i'm I'm really going to be treating a lot like any interim appointment more or less because although I really think there's a we we don't have a lot of uh you know, because the officer positions are fairly defined, we usually do pretty much know who's going to run for them even even if we have a competition in one, We, I hope we'll know, because um, I, I think that anyone who wants to run for, for an office, uh, I think this is true on the board, too. But I think it's incredibly true of the officers, you need to show your face to the organization, and you need to participate in the candidate activities. And you need to, you know, be upfront and learning and, and hearing what people say, and then and not just pop in at the last minute. So so, if you're thinking about running for one of the offices, let's 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 talk because you know we want to do that. Um, so, I'm assuming that that it, there is a reasonable chance that that I will get elected to an actual term, but I'm not going to make that as a total assumption till we get a lot closer. Um, and um, cause you all might decide three months is absolutely enough. Um, so, <laughs> Strategic um, thinking yet again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You never know. So anyway, but so for this three months, my, I, I a, lot um, a lot of the focus is going to be on the convention. A lot of the focus is going to be on transitioning uh, many things that are in the office, that, you know, transition from Eric. So there's, there's a process, for example, for transitioning corporate relationships that doesn't involve me so much directly, but it could involve me some. Um, and there's, um, there's other kinds of things that are kind of in that, in that place. So, um, Uh, for the most part, I'm going to be carrying out initiatives that Dan has already started because, um, I, one of the things that's helpful for people to know is that, that although I'm taking this on now, um, Dan has been very, you know, his, he, the word he likes is intentional. So, right. So Dan has been very intentional about, um, engaging me all through my term, um, in in whatever he's doing and thinking. And so it means that from just about the beginning of his term, any of the projects that he has started I uh, have been somehow part of. and so and have also basically committed to them. So you will not see uh, any kind of situation where uh, where, you know, Wednesday when I'm appointed, I announce the disbanding of eight committees and the formation of 15 more or some nutty (laughs) thing like that. Because, because, because basically I've already, if he and I had any issues or concerns or disagreement about that, we've already had those conversations. Those went by a long time ago. So whatever's there is negotiated and done. So that doesn't mean I'll never make a change. And he doesn't expect it to be that way. But it does mean that, um, Uh, there will not be any sudden changes because there will not be any need to. We've already, we've already made some of them. So the newer committees that are being started or being, you know, fleshed out or some other changes that have been asked for or committed to or under consideration, wherever those are in their process, they will continue to go forward. So um, that's the plan. Uh, What, happens you know in in the longer term, of course, is determined by um, a lot of things um, you know that that happen throughout the organization. Um, we do have uh, proposed constitution and bylaws changes again this year. Um You can expect some every year, whether you all make us bring the same ones back every year or we get to bring new ones. There are going to be some because uh, when we made the commitment that we made to um, to make it possible for all of our members to vote and when when we made the commitment that we made to try to have um, some hybrid components to the convention. Um, and various other things, Um, it changed some of our logistic. And I hear every day from people who tell me they don't want to have a two-week convention, which is kind of where we're headed again. And the way to get around that is to make some strategic changes in how we do business. And um, they you can, can be the ones we're changes. that we propose. Yeah. yeah, they can be the ones we propose or they can be other ones that maybe we haven't thought of, but we're going to have to make some. So if we don't make some, then then the consequence will be what we're doing, which people have found to be a little unsatisfactory. And believe me, I have. And so, you know, my... My personal goals around this uh, don't necessarily match what the organization's goals will be because the president doesn't get to decide much. The president doesn't really have very much power. So, so you know, if I, if I, if I want to make noise about my opinion about how these should turn out, I should not be elected to anything so I can put my hand up every time you call for one. But, <laughs> um, but I do think that, um, you know, change, change is challenging, You know, it, it, it it changes inevitable, you know, it's the, it's the cheese thing, but, but, but it also can be very, you know, disconcerting. So, so we want to try to figure out how, how to make it make sense for people. You know, it's hard for me, just really frankly, it's hard for me that there are people who I know still object to the fact that we, um, allowed voting for all of our members, and then that is the first step in our undoing. Well, it's only the first step in our undoing if we don't make other changes that will support that environment. And I think we have some idea of what some of those might need to be, but I don't think we do know all of what those might need to be, and they may change over time, So, because that's what change does. So um, I I think that Um, uh, part of this is about trusting, you know, do you, do you trust your leaders to give you advice that you can actually take and use and that they've given it enough, enough thought, or do you really believe that there's a conspiracy movement out there and, and that we're about to close the organization down. And and so, um, you know, I don't have the answers. I don't have the answers in terms of how to get that all, all worked out, but I do know that, um, if we can, uh, get through some of these transitions that, um, that the organization will be more efficient and more inclusive and, um, you know, uh, a, a better place to work. So, um, but it's challenging when you're in the middle of, of yeah. that, because change always brings a certain level of chaos. And, um, you, you know, I actually think chaos is good if it's managed chaos but it's managed. It, you know, yeah. And it, leads it to has something. to be managed. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it does. You know, or you so just have a mess. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I'm I'm going to ask you to be vulnerable with us one more time. You've mentioned mm-hmm. a few times, you know, that you feel ultimately you're you're an introvert and I'm sure mm-hmm. the these thought processes must have crossed your mind over, over the last few months mm-hmm. in preparation mm-hmm. for planning for a run for president. But now that you were kind of, um, <laughs> being thrust into the spotlight yeah. earlier than anticipated mm-hmm. um is is there a fear level of of having to be the public face and and can you share with us a little bit what some of that thought process
1: has been like for you yeah i plan to be sick before every major event and then i wonder not to do <laughs> you're it you're not gonna get away <laughs> with that <Deb>. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um you know Uh, this is something I've always dealt with. I've always had a pretty visible position in things. I mean, you know, I, I've always been, I've always pretty much been kind of out there and, um, I have two. um, you, you talked about one of my major personality characteristics and we could talk about the other one because it might help to, to picture me. So, um, you know, they have those, uh, four, four, characteristics. There there are different things people do. There's the Myers-Briggs and there's all these others. But the one I'm thinking about right now is the one that I know staff have used. And so that's the one that's got the driver, the analyst, the motivator and the supporter, right? So there's these four and and that you all supposedly have a little of each and you might have some out of balance and you, you, most people aren't just perfectly well-rounded. They have a stronger side and a weaker side. I am a driver analyst on every time they do that survey. And if you do the um, Myers-Briggs, if that's the one you like, I am the introvert, intuitive, uh, thinking, judging. So I have a a very strong kind of constitutional makeup. And... I find that I can usually do what I have to do and whether that was you know, when I was taking care of my friend and I always said, you know, I am not a um, nurturing, I'm not the nurturing nurse, right? You know, I'll box you across the head if you have one more physical, you know, mishap here, you know, accident or something, you know, it's like, no, but but ultimately I sort of do what I need to do and... Um, and I'm used to who I am, so I'm. Everybody else isn't always, but I'm used to who I am, which means that I do know that I have this sort of reticence about standing up or whatever, and I know ways that I can sort of prepare for that. Um, uh, gin and tonic? No, <laughs> just kidding. Totally. <laughs> um, I I, I really drink very little. But, yeah, there you go. Yeah, but 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 seriously, I um. Uh, i do I do know about all of it and i and i 'm kind of used to how i how I think about things and how I feel and what things you know and the other thing I try to really do is to it is to bring people into my world who are not like me so that they won 't just reinforce the wrong things so that they will help me play off some of the things that i need um and that i don't necessarily bring i like i said i 'm I'm very different than Dan. And somebody said, let's see, this was, oh, yeah, it was at the leadership meetings in D.C., the in-person meetings. And, and I can't remember whether we were on the bus or in the meetings or where we were, but it was, a funny, it was a funny ask. And somebody said, oh, Deb, are you going to have to lead us in hip-hip-hooray?
0: That's a question. And I said,
1: <laughs> and I said no, I'm, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it and doesn't mean I would never do it, but that's really Dan's thing. And Dan should do that. And I would want Dan to do that anyway, you know, so it's not that I wouldn't, it's not that I wouldn't celebrate, but it's not as natural for me to do that as it is for him to do that. He was so great at the rally, you know, now, could I have stood up and and done a good job of introing a rally? Yeah, but it would have been a lot different looking than it was with him. And he was, he was just so perfect. So Um, so it's not that I wouldn't, but I tend to take behind the scenes jobs. And so it is going to be a little harder for me to sort of, um, push out there and, and, and be willing to do that. And I, yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's very true. It's just, you know and it
0: it sounds harder. like you don't mind sharing that spotlight a little bit if it's no, more comfortable no, for the organization as a whole i don't at need
1: all. the spotlight yeah, yeah i don't need the spotlight i would rather have the best person do it and dan kind of coaches me sometimes about well we probably need you to be a little bit more visible we probably need you to be you know and and he's really you know gracious about it and then i'm like well dan i can't do it. oh you <laughs> know you know so so it's it's not I guess I don't I guess the reason I'm willing to really share all this now too is that I don't um want people to think that just because I'm not in their face all the time doesn't mean that I don't care or that I'm not working for them or that I'm not, you know, but m- my style is not is not to to quite do it in that way. So do I need to modify my style some for the task? Probably yes, but Will I be able to completely change it without having a nervous breakdown? Probably not. So, you know, what what's the balance? A- and I don't know if I totally know yet, but that, that would be what I'm thinking about.
0: Mm-hmm. So Sheila wants to know, what is your favorite core value and why? And I think it also leads into a couple of other questions that we got. Are you satisfied with the work-life balance culture that we have for the volunteers in our organization? It's a big mouthful, but I, I, I'm pretty sure you can tackle it all at once. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah, I know I can. Um, yeah, I think, I think for me, um, a, a really base core value is, is the whole notion of integrity. Um, I believe that if you're honest, and I don't mean in a hurtful way with people, but if you are direct and straight and honest with them, that whatever else needs to happen can. And so, um, so for me, it's probably, you know, I will not lie to you. I, I will always tell you the truth. Now, how I may have to tell it to you, may, because of certain circumstances or confidentialities or other things, you know, there, there may be some limitations to that. But, but it's not going to be, so I, I may not be a tell-all person every time, because I may not be in a position to do that. But... Um, out of out of respect for others but but at the same time if if you come to me for feedback or you come to me to talk through something you know you'll have my undivided attention and you'll have my honest input back, whatever that is um, so i I feel like for me that's one of the most integral things. the work life balance thing is really interesting because um and i see this in in lots of organizations yeah. um we we do engage a large number of people and and i will say that you know that there's always room for improvement of course and and you know i'd be the first to say that um but i don't actually think that all the work is being done by a few people and sometimes i hear that as a as a statement of fact and when i look at the number of volunteers the organization has and we don't even capture all of the volunteer hours of the organization very well we need to do a better job of that Um, but you know when I look at that we have an astounding number of people who are volunteering now does that mean that there are not more who would like to and who have not found a niche yet and and certainly you know I'm sure that's true uh, I can think of examples of that. But but we've done a pretty amazing job of increasing that. So if we can continue to do that, then I do think we're on, on the right track. And I look at the number of people who are volunteering, for example, in the community, um, volunteering for ACB Media, serving on committees of various kinds. Um, you know, so... Um, so there's a lot of things that are being done by a lot of different people. And, um, so I don't think it's quite the old guard regime that it was, but I do think, uh, that we can still continue to improve. And one of the things that I'd like to be looking at with committees, uh, not during this three months, um, you know, but, but over time is, um, the whole the whole notion of succession planning, um, and Dan has started on that path really well by um, by getting people to um, uh, by getting people to have a, a vice chair or co chair for the committees, and so that starts to um, to to do some succession planning. But there's also probably some committees that need a turnover schedule. Um, and so I'm not coming after anybody, you know, and I know that when you've been working well together for a long time, it's really hard to think about not doing that. But, um, but you know, we have to have some mechanism for bringing new people in and that mechanism can't just be creating more committees. So they get to be on one too forever. So, um, so I kind of would like to have all of the committees, um, you know, develop, uh, and we will need to give them some support to do this, but to, to develop a process and a plan for how you will continue yourself past the reasonable work span of you. And what do we need to do to do that? So, um, uh, and I'm facing that with my own, you know, convention work group around the streaming and zooming of the conventions, you know, and we've done some of that work and we still have some more to do there. But, um, but the whole idea that there needs to be a plan for when I'm not doing it and then there needs to be a plan for when they're not doing it. So um, once we have something a little more like that in place, I think it will then be easier to identify which years or which time periods or whatever and which committees or work groups Will, be, will we be expecting or looking for some change to occur? Because, you know, you can't have your committee in a constant state of flux, but can you, can you build in ways to, um, to transition some people in? And how do you, how do, you do that? How do, what do they need to look like? What, what kind of characteristics uh, should they have? Because um, everyone who wants to serve on a committee isn't necessarily okay too. So how do we, how do we help people define that and identify that so it doesn't feel so personal? And I think that's a big piece to take off and chew, but I, I absolutely think that if we want to continue, um, we've got to, got to do something along those lines.
0: So mm-hmm. I want to apologize to the listeners mm-hmm. out there who don't hear their name today because mm-hmm. Deb is such a great um, conversationalist <laughs> that we've answered a lot of your questions.
1: Yeah, do you um, hear that.
0: Rowana, I believe is the way to pronounce it. Rowana Bacchus wants to uh-huh. know, do you think that we are effectively working with other blindness organizations on our key issues? And I just want to expand based mm-hmm. upon other questions mm-hmm. for you mm-hmm. to also include cross-disability pollination. Mm-hmm. Are we doing a good enough job? And if not what would you like to see maybe over the next year happen?
1: So we are doing a great deal more than we have done in the past. And that doesn't mean we have done it all. And it doesn't mean we couldn't do more because I'm sure we can. So I just want to start though with the, and I just had a conversation with Eric this morning, cause we're all having our final conversations with him and his role with us. And so he's kind of doing the parting words with each of us around that. And, um, uh, because he's going to be going to AFB, he has a lot of interest in that that topic. And that was a lot of what he and I talked about. Um, right now, um, our administration, which was, you know, Dan, Eric, Clark, and um, uh, I don't know if Kim was involved in this. I'm not too sure that she was, but I know Dan, Eric, and Clark were um, uh, for sure. Have been meeting on a quarterly basis with um, key and you know, complementary uh, staff of the NFB. So Mark Riccobono and then some of their key people. Uh, they meet quarterly. Those meetings are initiated by ACB, um, but they are uh, they are definitely participatory with both organizations. And there's been a, a lot of uh, good. Uh, work done and spade work done, and it's been mentioned several times uh, that we have several of our legislative imperatives in common, and you can't do much better than that to have the blindness orgs, the major blindness orgs, come together over legislative initiatives really increases our chances of getting something done. So that's good. Um, we also um, are part of um, uh, Vision Serve Alliance, which is all of the, the private agencies and organizations that serve people who are blind. We have a, an active relationship with the BVA, Um, we, um, hope to be sort of repartnering with AFB once it kind of gets itself a a new mission and vision and, and on its feet again, a little better. We work collaboratively with APH, um, you know, so we do a lot in the blind biz and, and I don't know if we could do more there, but we, we have a, a, a very outward, um, relationship there. We could do, I think, a little bit better in the in the general disability uh, community. That's always a little challenging because that's a little more fragmented. Um, we do have good relationships with the Access Board and uh, NDRN and um, and um, uh, NCD, the National Council on Disability, and some of those places. Um, but we probably could uh, do a, a little better. Um, uh, in, in that area. And I'm sure we could, um, uh, I, I used to have a lot of relationship in, in, NICL, Nickel, uh, which is the National Council on Independent Living. And so that's probably a relationship we can bring back pretty easily. Um, and so, um, you know, so we do, we do need to do that. We have, um, for example, around, uh, the, the, uh, the, the Communications Act, uh, communication technology, um, accessibility. We have a pretty good collaboration with the deaf community because that's the other, uh, and the deafblind community, of course, but with the deaf community as well because they actually would have to be a partner in the passage of that particular right. legislation. So, yeah. I I think I mean, there's always more we can do. But do we have intent to be there? Yes. And do we take action to be there? Yes, we do.
0: So I'm going to combine basically 11 questions into one. Oh,
1: my gosh. Uh Yes, yes. (laughs) And
0: ask you, we have had a lot of conversation in ACB over the last couple of years about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. we have a lot of conversation going on about, and and a word you just used, the session planning, but also Mm -hmm. why don't we have more younger membership? So- Mm Give us, tackle both of those <laughs> in one.
1: <laughs> well, you know, obviously we, the ideal would, is that, would, that our organization would be as diverse as our culture. And I, I know when I was uh, employed, we used to keep data on what that would look like. Um, and, and what, what, you know, what that would need to look like. And then, and then once you know what it needs to look like, then what kinds of steps can you take? Um, and uh, I was very impressed this weekend at the leadership conference with uh, the the quantity and quality of uh, the presence of people of color, for example, um, at that conference, uh, way higher than it's been. And, and I loved it. That was great. That's a good sign for us. Um, I... Um, I think that's reflected in some of our higher positions now as well. Of course, as you know, we had our first uh, run at at providing Spanish uh, during the uh, virtual portion of the leadership conference yes, with a lot of with a lot of success. Um, and and so with anything, you know, can can you do more? Of course, you can do more. But you know, uh, can you can is is the progress that you've made is that is that good? You know, and, and I think it is good. I think that we're beginning to look a little bit more, um, you, you know, uh, a little less homogeneous in, in some of those ways. Um, the challenge of younger people, um, again, you know, I look back at this last weekend and we had a much higher representation of younger, newer leaders, uh, yeah. with us last weekend than we've uh, ever seen. You know, I was like, wow, this is good. The passion, yeah. yeah. Do we need to do some more work there? Yes. And, and again, some of the things that, that we talk about needing to change are things that might make a difference. For example, younger people have told me that the length of our convention is really problematic for them if they are employed and have children and, and, and at the expense of taking that many days. So what if we were someday able to get our in-person convention down to, say, five days, Um, you know, which is the average length of most conventions. So I'm not saying that we'll do that. I'm not saying that's the the thing we need to end up with. But what if? Uh, Would that make a big difference for a lot of younger people? Probably would. Um, Because I think we're beginning to really have content that they would like. I sure think the content we had last weekend, you know, with the space telescope guys and the parks people and, and, uh, NLS and APH and, and then all the other things we did. Um, that was one of the most fun weekends I've ever had, so, you know? So I, I, I think that, um, I think that these things can, can change in time, but I think we have to be flexible to the fact that, that younger people's needs are a little different than, I mean, I have more disposable income than most young people and I have more disposable time than most young people. Yeah. So, you know, what, what's fun for me, uh, is going to be a big drain for them. It may be. And so how do we, how do we, uh, how do we meet both? How do we create something where maybe I can come and spend all my time and money <laughs> and you can come and, and still get something out of it. Um, so, um, I know part of our answer is our, is the work that we do with virtual only and in-person only. And, uh, th- I'm going to be very interested. We're going to be doing, a survey. I think it might come out today or maybe the beginning of the week, but there's a survey, you know, about last, about the whole leadership conference. And I'm going to be really interested to see how people, what people talk about with respect to those breakouts, because I think, uh, in, in time, you know, because I think that's part of the answer, um, is offer different things and then the people who can do what they can will.
0: Yeah. I got two more questions for you. Um, yeah. Yeah. Again, and and I'm I'm conglomerating a bunch of stuff all together.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're doing a great job.
0: Thank you. We we had some interesting conversations over mm-hmm. over the couple of days in D.C. about mm-hmm. you know the affiliate structure and mm-hmm. you know the structure of ACB right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we got a couple of questions in on that. Mm-hmm. What are you looking for from the state affiliate leaderships? What do you need from them? And off the top of your head, what are you looking to kind of offer them back?
1: Well, I don't know yet, um, to be honest with you. And that's first, very valid. I mean, I, I don't quite know. What, what I do sort of think, um, I, we heard a lot of really good stuff in, in those breakout sessions. And um, one of the things we're doing right now is gathering that up so we can sort of quantify it and qualify it and know what it is um, and, and break it down to, you know, pretty definitive stuff. So that's going to help uh, us with um, proposing future direction for sure. Um, We're also probably going to find some ways to get some additional input on it because people who participated virtually only didn't get to do this. uh, And we know that. Um, And so we'll probably try to augment it. But we may not ask exactly the same questions, because once we have some data, we may be uh, seeing if where well, you want to drill it. down yeah. a little bit more? Yeah. yeah. So, so we may do a little differently, but, um, but, but, but I do know the intent is to to do that. So there's that. Then the other part of that is one of the things that I really loved uh, in the discussion um, was the idea of the cross pollin better cross pollination of the um, state affiliates and the special interest affiliates, and somebody's suggestion that uh, we should maybe try to encourage state affiliates to um, welcome chapters of special interest affiliates mm. to, to, re- to partly do that to make, to make it m- more inviting in some cases, but also to um, reduce the problem of members at large. Now, I don't happen to have a problem personally with members at large at all. So that's just me. Um, if the organization decides it officially has one, then I'm going to support whatever the organization does. But uh, <coughs> excuse me, I've um, I I think there's value in belonging wherever it is you fit in. And so if if being a member at large works best for you, for example, where I live, um, special interest affiliates are meaningful to me, but the state affiliate is hard for me because it's all very far away. None of it yeah. isn't here. So uh, so if I were not a member of a special interest affiliate that has a chapter in my state, I would probably be a member at large. So I'm not down on that. But I think to the extent we can get people connected, uh, the affiliates, both kinds, special interest and state are extremely valuable in a way that I think is probably harder for most members at large. So... Having said that, I I really am excited to see if we can get um, state affiliates to to more embrace that, and several have, and I think it's helped them. And if we can get others to do so as well, that would be good. Um, the other thing that um, all that sparked with me too was the idea that some of our uh, committees uh, might have a, a better uh, could have a better connection. Uh, to particular, particularly special affiliates. interest affiliates. Yeah. So, for example, the employment committee ought to be fed by ACBGE, um, uh, the um, uh, uh, RSVA, uh, IV. Um, you know that sort of thing. Um, I thought of somebody else too, and I can't think. Of this. I came up with four of them, but uh, I'm missing one, and I don't mean to. But um, but the point being that if if you have an an employment connection uh, in your um, in your special interest affiliate in particular, then maybe that would be a nexus. And so there are probably others too. So, um, you know, if if we can figure that out. So if we can draw people a little bit closer together in those ways, um, because I do know people who are part of special interest affiliates who've never uh, partaken of their state affiliate at all. And I, in some cases I know why, but it's like, okay, rather than try to really uh, deal with that? Is there a way to include them from where they are? And yeah. so I liked that somebody brought that up. And I thought that was um, beautiful. So uh, to say, do I just totally endorse that? And that's exactly what's going to have to happen. Like I told you, pre- presidents don't really have very much power. So <laughs> so I can't will it. But it sure seems to me like if we could encourage it or help to um, help to move Ideas like that forward and there may be others that you know people will have but that seems um that seems to be a way that that would bring because uh, you know um it, it's hard because your special aff- interest affiliate people come together because of some particular affinity and geography isn't much of an affinity anymore so it's harder for states i think um but we'll see how it goes
0: so my last question to you is a twofer, um, and and I I am really beginning to believe that our community as a, um, you know, one of those stereotypes is we really mm-hmm. like numbers. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, there was two or three questions about the mm-hmm. only one out of 10 in our community mm-hmm. belongs to either consumer mm-hmm. organization. Mm-hmm. How much do you do you take that as value? And what do you think ACB as an organization should or could be doing to change that number?
1: Hmm. I absolutely think that's the right number uh, or something similar. And the reason that I do is because I'm a data wonk and I love data. And every time somebody lays a number like that on me, I go out and I see if I can validate it or not on a large sample of people that I can find. When I was employed, I always had a large sample of people I could find. I had an agency database, (laughs) which might have thousands in it. And I, I did several runs. Now, you know, I can argue that Washington State is better or worse at membership development for the organizations, you know, but I doubt it. I think it's all about the same. So I, uh, on a couple of different occasions, ran uh, my own personal surveys against the data that we had. And I can tell you that that, that number works up correctly every time. Um, it's it's a very low number of people who uh, technically have a significant vision loss, who identify with any organization, membership organization of that nature. So most of that would be AF, uh, ACB, rather, and NFB, but there's a little bit of other stuff, too. Yeah. Um, you know, BVA probably has a little higher ratio on its people because there's a very specific reason why you can be part of BVA, yeah. um, um, different than the rest of us. So, but no, it's extremely low. And I, and I served people for years. I've served hundreds of people personally on made various kinds of caseloads. The number always checks out. It just does. Um, It's very low. So, so I don't have, I mean, we can split hairs about whether it's 5%, 6%, 10%, 4%. You know, I'm, I'm open to that. But, but I am not going to tell you that it's, that that number is wrong, because it's, not wrong, so there's a few issues that that play into that. One of them, of course, is that many people don't identify themselves as having a visual impairment. My father, who is 92, has very qualifying visual impairment, but he would never tell you that he does. Um, so, so part of it is identity, and uh, it's it's why some kinds of organizations have taken blind out of their name because of people's perception that blindness means no light perception and I still see, you know, 200,000 watt bulbs, you know. So, um, yeah, out of one eye on Thursdays. So I'm not blind. So that's real, right? I've so, never fallen
0: down the stairs. I'm not yeah, blind.
1: Yeah, I'm not blind. Yeah, or when I did, I didn't hit my head. So, yeah, so therefore I know I'm not. Yeah, so that's really pretty common. And so there's that's one piece of it but i think the other part of it is um is is that people don't realize um that there would be value in 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 becoming part of any group you know it's like um y- if you can even come to us because you need a support group you know that's one thing and many of our chapters and maybe even some of our affiliates operate pretty exclusively as that but um i think it's really about Uh, education and awareness and um, uh, (coughs) just uh, really uh, marketing what you have to offer. Um, We, you know, one of the things that's near and dear to my heart, we have the ERPS committee, but our whole information and referral structure, infrastructure isn't quite what it could be. And we don't quantify and qualify all that. And we should, and if we could become a major place that people come for information, um, you know, and we make sure that we follow up with them. Um, how often do we give out information and then not follow up? You know, any of us individually. I'm not pointing a finger at the office or any committee or anything. I'm just saying, how how often do we do that? You know, you, me. So um, I think there's a lot of... Um, you know, uh, in, in the branding arena and, um, in, in the whole arena of communication and, and kind of getting the word out and, um, you know, uh, kind of carrying that, that torch a little bit to places. So, um, you know, maybe, you know, encouraging and helping our, our local affiliates to get out to senior centers. And, you know, yeah, we talked about recruiting uh, young people, but the population is older. I mean, that, that it's skewed there. We need to capture those people, um, and, and, um, and, and be what they're looking for. So, yeah it's a complex problem but the number is unfortunately i think pretty good
0: well deb i i want to thank you so much for your time um for your eagerness you know when and and i so respect how you immediately told me that your sunday your work-life balance your sunday has to be yours Um, but your eagerness to make it work.
1: Oh yeah. I'm just delighted to, and I'm sorry we're not doing this in person, but you did a really good job of identifying a load of questions. I mean, we couldn't have done much more. So um, I I really appreciate the opportunity so very, very much. And um, uh, I'm just, um, I want to be available. I want to be reachable to people as, as much as is reasonable. And I, I really look forward to serving the organization in a different way over the next three months and maybe beyond. Um, This is my first candidates forum, you know.
0: (laughs) Well, I know you'll be back for the BPI one. Oh, I'm sure.
1: Have you guys set a date yet? Have you got a date yet?
0: I am actually setting the date this weekend, so I'll let okay. you know.
1: All righty. Sounds good. Sounds well,
0: good. thank you so much thank for being you. so open and for sharing, you know, some personal stories as well as your philosophies. I think we're going to have an interesting three months and beyond.
1: Well, thank you so much. I, I do look forward to it.
0: You've been listening to Sunday Edition on ACB Media, Stream One, that's American Council of Divine Media, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Episodes drop every week at 1 p.m. on Sundays, and you can email us at Sunday Edition AC, all one word, Sunday Edition with the letters AC at gmail.com. Let's brunch again together next Sunday.